Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Autism Spectrum Therapies and the Learn AST Provider Network. Now, here is your host, Rob Howe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt, Executive Vice President with Learn Behavioral, a company providing ABA services to individuals with autism and other developmental disorders all across this country. Um, really excited about today's show. Um, one of those shows that we've been we've been able to put together that really kind of focuses uh, not just on what are the needs of our community, but really trying to look at how can we maybe innovate and find some, some new solutions um, to our community's problems or some of the challenges that we all face, uh, you know, trying to help our, our kids the spectrum. Um, you know, I had an interesting, interesting weekend. Got to, uh, got a chance to sit down with, with a whole bunch of people from the world of ABA, our, you know, applied behavior analysis community, um, at the annual California State Association Conference. And one of the things I really kind of was taken aback by, um, was all of the different people across the room and in, in every talk I went to and in, in every audience I went to at every lunch where everybody essentially had the same thing to say. I do it better. I do it best. I do it right. And as I started to just kind of be that fly in the wall and listen, one of the things I kind of noticed was in a field driven by data and a field driven by uh, making sure we, we clearly define goal, the behavior, what we're working on, none of the people could actually tell me what made them better, what made them the best, what made them right. There, there was no data for it. There's no definition for it. It was the, the exact opposite of what applied behavior analysis is really known for. It was, in fact, just a subjective definition. And it kind of got me thinking, it's, you know, if you're brand new to this field, a young practitioner, or if you're a family, just getting exposed to all of this saying, I've been told about this ABA thing. I, where do I find it? Who do I get it from? It's got to be so challenging when we're all using the exact same word with zero definition behind it. And so it kind of got me thinking about, well, does actually make someone the best or, or, and really, let's say better because, you know, the best itself is somewhat subjective. And it really kind of made me think a little bit about what were the things that people actually weren't talking about or, or not wanting to spend as much time with. And it, for me, it kind of came down to three critical things. You know, the, the first one was somewhat obvious, and it probably would be somewhat obvious to you guys out there, is it's staying on top of the research, staying on top of what is the evolution of this science, not being locked into this is the way I do it, this is the only way I do it, and that's it, but staying on top of what research is coming out, how can I improve what it is that uh, I do within my treatment. Um, some people might call it clinical curiosity, uh, but, but that seemed to be something critical. A second thing was family involvement. Um, you know, it seemed so much of everything was about this behavior or this child. 
And that whole family-focused approach, which there is a ton of research to show is the best practice, really wasn't part of the descriptions or the dialogue people were engaging in about best and better and right. And then the last thing that kind of struck me that people weren't incorporating into this was just being on top of all of the things that weren't clinical, the invoice, the credentialing, the health plan, the law, the licensing, um, that felt pretty critical to me. Um, and, and just speaking of someone who has a child who goes to doctors and receives medical coverage and care for other things, the stress of a bill that we don't understand, the stress of some guideline or, or not understanding some some procedure or, or something within the system that causes my, my wife and myself um, it, it just can't even compare to the types of issues that come up, especially from a cost perspective, for the average family trying to care for a, a loved one with autism. Um, and that's also something that just wasn't part of the conversation. It, it almost seemed like it didn't uh, become necessary to be aware of all these different things, the regs, the guidelines, um, in order to actually say you are better or best. So just some thoughts as you kind of Talk to your current provider. Talk to potential providers. You know, some things that I think are really critical as you begin or just even continue this journey of receiving body treatment for your loved one. Well, let's talk a little bit about today's show and today's guest. Um, really excited. Uh, we're joined by a really exciting guest who uh, is starting to embark on a bit of a partnership um, with Learn Behavioral. So today I'm joined by Dr. Sharif Terriman, uh, the Chief of General Pediatric Neurology at Children's Hospital of Orange County, as well as the Chief Medical Officer at Cognoa, a digital behavioral health company based in Palo Alto. Um, Sharif has a, a specialty in child neurology, um, and Cognoa is an organization who uh, is starting a, a partnership with Learn Behavioral. One of the things I'm really excited about um, that we're embarking on is a project to really expand um, early diagnosis and screenings. And, and one of these partnerships is going to be uh, a free screening that we're offering uh, Saturday, February 9th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the AST office in West Loop at 670 West Hubbard Street, Suite 200, Chicago, Illinois. So, Sharif, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Great to be with you, Rob. So, um, you know, obviously I think the the – the big obvious question to kind of start us off to, to make sure all of our listeners kind of are starting to, to know some of the things uh, that we know is like, you know, what is Cognoa? How, you know, what is it? How does it work? And, yeah. So Cognoa is founded by Dr. Dennis Wall, who's now at Stanford, previously at Harvard. And Dennis was, uh, Dr. Wall was really trying to figure out how do we better identify patients with autism than the current standard of care, which, you know, unfortunately, as a, as a pediatric neurologist, you know, we see this a lot. Uh, children who either there was a lot of watchful waiting and or have waited a long time to get a diagnosis uh, miss out on really an essential window of time for them to get the therapies that they need. Uh, and so Dennis's background is really in bioinformatics, which is looking at how do you use technology to, you know, make sense of large amounts of data. And his 
she was actually in the genomic space and looking at the genes related to autism, but realized if he really wanted to do his, his research, we needed a better way to, to get these kids identified earlier. And so over the past several years, Cognoa has been really working on his algorithm um, that uses artificial intelligence to better define the kiddos who have autism. Uh, and ultimately, our goal is to, to, to have it being used as a diagnostic um, with FDA regulation on board um, and really also help um, identify which kids would benefit from which treatments and really personalize the approach uh, to treatment in autism more. So, you know, the, point, the, the big term you said that kind of sticks with me is through like artificial intelligence algorithm. So, you know, I think folks are probably used to, or like uh, the telehealth model where you, where you have people um, zooming in or, you know, doing more of like a, a live video feed. So when we think about Cognoa, is, is it that, or is it more of that video that I take of my child or, or somebody that then gets processed through some sort of like computer-based algorithm? Great question. You know, the interesting thing is artificial intelligence, uh, you know, it, it, I think people view it as something being very, you know, out there and maybe, you know, a little bit hard to understand, but it actually is embedded in many of the things that we currently do today. I mean, I think if you take your Amazon Alexa, your Google Home, mm -hmm. your Siri, I mean, all of those have artificial intelligence based in them. And so uh, this is not a telemedicine consult type situation. Um, what mm -hmm. we've been able to figure out is that um, rather than asking hundreds and hundreds of questions of, of families, we can ad identify what are the most maximally predictive features that will help us identify a patient with autism. And so what Karnoa does presently is uh, and part of the a partnership that we recently had with some uh, uh, self-funded employers as well as um, with uh, AST Learn um, behavioral partners is using a set of questions that the parent answers, uh, two videos of the child at home uh, in their normal space, um, and then extracting those features that are highly predictive for autism to then drive that computer algorithm to identify, does this child have high risk for autism um, mm -hmm. or an autism diagnosis? You know, I, I'm, I got to assume, you know, you mentioned Alexa. And so, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a much lighter, you know, maybe not the right parallel, but I think sometimes about, uh, you know, I sometimes think about people, not necessarily being comfortable with Alexa and like the, the data that gets stored, like you said, like the artificial intelligence you see, have you guys seen any resistance or any concerns about that um, versus, you know, we are oftentimes, especially from a behavioral health perspective, that live face-to-face -face is, you know, that live face-to-face -face interaction is still alive and well, you know, even like the live telehealth sometimes isn't accepted. Has there been any pushback so far in terms of, the fact that now you have kind of pre-recorded videos in the questionnaire? Uh, you know, not so much. I mean, I think um, I would be a little bit wary to use Alexa and Siri to do my, like we, you're not allowed to use Siri to dictate your notes in the, in the, in the healthcare practice because it's not uh, HIPAA compliant. It's not right, secure. Right. Um, yep. You know, everything that we do is treated as medical information. Um, we, yeah. all of our data is encrypted end to end. So there's, there's a lot of patient privacy safety 
um, that goes mm -hmm. into into the product, and we function as a medical device uh, company. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so it's it's everything is is treated like HIPAA, um, and in that yeah. sense, you know, we really have not because also too, I think one of the things that you ha we have to keep in mind is when I deal with patients, and this is not the case, but I'm more willing to. Uh, patients are more willing to sacrifice potential privacy if there is something that's really meaningful to them at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the laws that we have in place, like HIPAA, aren't meant to be um, blocking sharing of information in healthcare. It's really to protect the patient and actually encourage um, sharing of information. And I think one of the things that people often forget is there's part of that HIPAA law is actually not just privacy, but portability. And portability is that patients should mm. own their health information and they should have mm -hmm. access to their health information. Um, and I think we're going to see that change in healthcare a lot um, because mm -hmm. we want patients to be engaged in their, in their healthcare because that's going to help make them healthier and better. So if you give, if you, if you say, you know what, I'm willing to answer a couple questions. I'm willing to share, you know, a couple of videos of my child interacting um, what is the benefit of that? And if you're able to get an expedited diagnosis of autism and get your child into therapy, you know, 12 months, a year sooner than what would have normally happened in the current system, you know, there's a benefit to that. And, and maybe you're more willing to use stuff that you're maybe wary of, even though we have all the protections in place for it. You know, you, you kind of segued exactly where I was hoping to go next is, you know, you we we're in this middle ground, and I think, uh, you know, I I I spend more than half of my time working with you know uh, the insurance companies and working through kind of that the the overall process of how do I go from diagnosis to treatment and then the ongoing treatment you know uh, span. Um, I think about what you said about diagnosis and, you know, we're kind of in this middle ground of uh, you have to get the data, you have to create cognitive, look at all this, these case studies and put, pull them together to be able to show, hey, how do we get to that early remote diagnosis? You know, obviously there's tremendous long-term benefit to be able to say, I live in this remote area, I can use Cognoa through this, this uh, the app to be able to expedite all of the wait lists or the limitations of psychologists, neurologists, pediatricians, understand autism in my area. Um, but in, in, the, in the present, you know, what is the outcome? What is that, um, I guess, permanent product that, uh, that a parent gets through Cognoa? Yeah, so currently what we're doing is, is we're, we're operating under a screening. And so when the child uh, completes the evaluation, the parent or caregiver completes the evaluation, they're basically identified whether or not they are at high risk for autism or, you know, low risk for autism. And it, and it gives a developmental snapshot of where they're at. You know, one of the challenges for pediatricians is, you know, if you come in and you say, you know, my kid, he's not really playing with toys the way that I would expect, um, you know, or, you know, he seems like his eye contact's not the greatest, you know, he seems like he's shy you know, they may not, that may not red flag them, right? That, that's not going to necessarily uh, make the pediatrician suddenly or the primary care physician suddenly go, oh, you know what, I think your child may have autism. Um, but if we're able to extract information and 
and, and, and when we generate a report for the pediatrician for a child who's been identified as high risk and identify that actually the child does not initiate joint attention and the child's eye contact is diminished and below where it should be for his peers or her peers, you know, and they have, you know, uh, whatever other features were identified and we present that to the pediatrician in a format that is what they what they heard in medical school as a you know diagnostic criteria for autism, and we can give that supporting information. What our hope is is really to be able to establish the diagnosis in primary care settings, because the reality is is that we're never going to have enough developmental pediatricians, developmental psychologists, neurologists, or child and adolescent psychiatrists to meet the you know ever increasing uh, population of children with developmental delays and autism spectrum disorder and related. It's just, we're, we're never going to, we're never going to be able to do that. And so we have to yeah. change the paradigm of healthcare. You know, it's, it, you kind of answered my half of, of the question I'm going to ask you next is, you know, you have this deficit where someone maybe not, doesn't have enough expertise to be able to truly kind of identify autism or, or maybe has some um, familiarity with it. Um, and it makes sense of, up a report that really more specifically aligns itself to the DSM criteria. Um, are there things that a parent needs to do to help, like almost to help to bridge that gap? You know, like is is there beyond just the report itself? Are, are there things either maybe from a ongoing education of the pediatrician community or or what a parent can bring to the table to support that type of effort in the next step? Yeah, so, so one of the things that we find is, you know, what you really, again, I think this is about patient engagement, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's unrealistic to assume that suddenly a parent is, um, you know, thrown into this world with, with any diagnosis, any chronic diagnosis, and suddenly is like, okay, you know, the, you know, the, the treatment, the, the medical community just takes it on, right? Yeah. What we see in any chronic condition is, is that, the, the, the patient and the family, when they're engaged and they're determined to make things better, right, we find that that engagement then drives better outcomes. And so part of what we're trying to do with the platform is, and, and, and Cognol is not meant to be a replacement for a, a physician. It's supposed to help, and this is what we see yeah. in artificial intelligence around, the, around the, the, the whole spectrum of healthcare is, it's augmenting and it's, and it's, it's making the physician able to do something that they weren't that great at before, and now it's empowering them to do that. And mm. So in the same way, we're empowering the pediatrician or the primary care physician to go ahead and make the diagnosis and get that kiddo into services early. We're also trying to empower the parent. And so mm -hmm. after we establish what is the the features that are driving the potential diagnosis of autism, those features are actually also used to start serving up recommendations to start the process mm. of how do I help my child move forward? And then again, partnering with someone like Learn where we can get them into the behavioral therapies and get right. them autism specific treatments early and treatments that are tailored to their child, that's what's gonna really help drive the patient forward, right? So if I find out, mm -hmm. you know, this kid can't tolerate speech therapy because the behavior is, is not where it needs to be, I need to focus more on getting the behaviors in line so that then the child can benefit from speech therapy. And so having this personalized approach is important. And I think, 
what we've done with Incognoa and with these partnerships is figure out ways that we can support parents, um, especially those who have, who unfortunately are affected by healthcare disparities, which is a lot of patients. Um, so, so giving them the tools, giving them the resources, um, partnering them with the right individuals. Um, we actually have um, a lot of resources within the app, um, including some personal touches um, and personalized medicine approaches that you know just aren't aren't really accessible in present healthcare state. So you know, I'm kind of curious. Do you envision? I think about what you're saying, and I I. I I think I think I I get what you're saying. It's like, you know, almost almost gets the pediatrician three quarters of the way there to then help complement the one quarter that they have in in this you know this equation of a diagnosis. You know, I almost think about it again. You know, I, I tend to think about things from kind of like that funding pathway. It almost seems like also you have the opportunity to say, hey, this is a PED who maybe was comfortable enough to say, I think there's an issue. Um, I'm going to refer you to a psychologist to get an evaluation. You know, does it does it stand to reason that you could almost take the point of the Cognoa, Cognoa is, is going to be able to identify these high-risk areas and identify kind of like the medical need. Hey, look, these are the medical needs of this kid. The pediatrician mm-hmm. can use their, you know, part of the expertise in the equation to be like, ah, yeah, I see this, I see this, I see this. Yes, I'm going to provide the diagnosis of autism. And now you almost eliminated the step of also the psychologist potentially coming next, uh, not for every kid, but for some kids. And you can almost start that treatment chain kind of almost like, you know, if it was twice as fast the uh, the way you described it, it's almost like, you know, three times or four times as fast because now you've got the medical necessity piece identified from the app itself. Exactly. And I think what what we're trying to do is is because right now, right, and anywhere you go, and I don't, it doesn't matter yeah. where you are in the country, some places are more effective sure. than others. There's a wait list to get an autism diagnosis in a specialty oh, yeah. care setting. And um, what we really need to be doing is, you know, our autism treatment network sites, you need to help, if we can do this right, we can help them focus on treating the kids mm-hmm. rather than spending all of the resources that we have on trying to mm-hmm. diagnose kids. Um, and that's not a that's not a, a a criticism of the autism treatment network. That's a criticism of the healthcare system as a whole, right? We've done yeah. these children a disservice by making making them wait in long lines and sometimes the wrong line, right? So if there's a child and there's a concern for autism because one of our sort of nondescript screeners identified that child as having potentially autism and they go stand in the wrong line. And let's say they get to a neurologist and I go, you know, actually, it's not autism. I'm sorry, but it's not a neurologic thing. I think it might be psychiatric. Go stand in the psychiatric line, right? Now they're back at square one, and it's not like they get to go to the front of the line. They go to the back of that line um, and vice versa. They might end up in a, you know, developmental psychologist, and then the psychologist is like, well, you know what? This is not autism, but it's not a psychological thing. Maybe this child actually has, you know, epilepsy. Oh, go stand mm-hmm. in the pediatric neurology line, and then it's, they don't get to the front of the line, right? They go down to the back of the line again. So I think getting kids in the kind of the right line at the right time is going to be really important. Yeah. And then if we yeah. can just cut the lines in general. 
So if we can empower primary care physicians to confidently make diagnoses of children with autism, right, that helps cut down that wait list because the line doesn't get it. It's not as long, right? It's like I get to go to Disneyland when it's, when it's a Tuesday and it's raining, and I'm not going to stand in line forever to get on the ride that I want to get on. You know, where, I guess, how far down the road? I mean, look, obviously, the, I think you alluded to this earlier on. It's like the, the ideal world from a pure access point of view is, you know, to be able to have some sort of um, app or, or some sort of, um, you know, telemedicine approach to be able to, to have certainty of, hey, we've gone through this app. This child has autism. I mean, is that feasible? Is there ever a world where you can skip the step, do you think, of that pediatrician confirming and the app itself can get immediate diagnosis where you can then generate the port and get paired up with treatment? Or is that just light years away? I don't th- so this is a personal bias, but you know, yeah. as a clinician, I don't think you're ever going to really replace a physician. I think mm-hmm. I, I know this for a fact. What you're going to do is yeah. you're all, you're going to augment the clinician. I think having a clinical degree of evaluation is not unreasonable. The question I think becomes, you know, does that clinician need to be the primary care physician? Uh, or mm-hmm. sorry, the specialist, or can it be done in the primary care level? And to be honest with you, right, so I'm a, I am sit on the local board of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Orange County, and mm-hmm. I work with pediatricians, and they're really bright people, and they're really good physicians, and guess what? They know the patients way better than I'm going to know the patient when they first show up into my office for a specialty mm-hmm. evaluation. So who best to make a diagnosis of autism than the person that knows the patient and knows the family better? Right? So I think shifting it to the primary care setting makes a lot of sense, and you're not going to have the weights. And, yeah, there's going to be some kids that are complicated, yeah. and the applicant is not going to be able to figure them out, and even a specialist might have a difficulty figuring them out. But at least that's, you know, the 20% get referred, not the 100%, which is the current state of affairs. I think very yeah. little ASD is diagnosed in a primary care setting. And it's not that they can't because we have guidelines and recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics and primary care, you know, organizations to say, you know what, this is something that should be and can be done in a primary care setting. Yeah, I I never really thought about this when we were kind of, you know, developing our partnership and thinking about, you know, the way Learn and and, uh, Cognoa can partner together. But but just listening to your response there about just the role of the primary care physician and the pediatrician, you know, one of the things I've kind of struggled with over the last probably seven to eight years, and, and at first this was California specific, but I, I think it's national, is we, we don't really have great coordination of care between pediatricians and ADA providers. I mean, I, I think they actually, they tend to be, it tends to be very poor. Um, and even coordination of care with other related professionals can be a challenge sometimes. You know, I, I wonder, does, by having the pediatrician play this more direct role in the diagnosis through a, a cognoa by creating a, a tighter or a quicker bridge to treatment, does that ultimately lead to a better coordination of care between the pediatrician and the uh, treatment provider, which is lacking right now? 
I would say I would say 100%. And I think um, what I can tell you is is that you know and this it goes back a little bit to that second uh, second P in HIPAA, right? Mm-hmm. The portability, right? It's, right. Part of this is is about how do we bridge and and get the healthcare team on the same page, and even more so than putting the pediatrician back into the equation, I think it's actually centering your care around the patient and around the patient's family. And I mm-hmm. think as, as we create these kinds of partnerships, the the amount of benefit that we're going to see is going to be um, is going to be really really good um, because we're we're bringing back into the fold the pediatrician, like you mentioned. I think that that's actually an excellent point. Um, and I know for a fact that it makes a difference um, because yeah. one of the things that I also do is I work in multidisciplinary clinics. And so I can tell you that when we have kids with complicated disorders, if you can be seen in a multidisciplinary clinic or you can create a multidisciplinary team, which autism is, a, is one of those conditions that needs a multidisciplinary team, um, with, you know, it's the behavioral therapist, it's the occupational therapist, mm-hmm. the speech therapist, and definitely if you can loop in the pediatrician and then engage that patient and, the, and have that rotate around the patient, and the patient's the center of that universe, you're going to make much better healthcare outcomes for that child, and those lifelong gains are going to be really, really important because we can maximize the intervention when that child needs it and then tailor the intervention so that it sets them up for the most success. You know, and this may be, you know, this may be not as critical to, to the the greater conversation we're talking about. You know, I, I, and actually, I don't know if this is that critical to it, but, but like I said, I always tend to think about things from that insurance company Mm -hmm. lens that I'm working with is, you know, these are the types of things. I mean, I I look around at the other side of the table, uh, TRICARE right now, for example, just, um, eliminated telehealth, um, something they had done for a long time within kind of the ABA treatment model. There has been a lot of um, resistance in some in some areas for you know telemedicine um, in other disciplines. I mean, if you think about this from um, that other side, you know, not the clinician side, but the insurance company side, or maybe even from a regulatory side outside of just HIPAA. You know, do you think there's other barriers um, that need to be addressed um, in terms of how to leverage Cognoa or, or just technology in general within the diagnostic, I guess, equation? Yeah, you know, I think uh, what we've seen is we've seen a big push in terms of digital therapeutics and digital diagnostics coming mm-hmm. um, into the fold. Um, the FDA has actually been very uh, accepting um, as a regulatory agency of these, and I think oh, really? you know our conversations with them have been uh, pretty positive, and um, they are really committed to helping companies like Cognoa, um, you know, navigate the regulatory framework and be able to bring things that are innovative and safe to to the community and to the healthcare system. Um, I think on the flip side of that. You know, our discussions actually with insurance companies have also been pretty favorable. Um, one of the deals that uh, our partnerships that recently um, transpired with Cognoa was also with Cambia. Um, and Cambia, which is uh, part of the um, uh, Blue, Blue, uh, Blue Network um, in the Pacific Northwest, 
um, they're offering it as a um, benefit um, to their self-insured books. Um, nice. So Cognola is, is, is partnering with these kinds of companies. We've been in discussion with other insurance companies. Um, again, because ultimately, as much as people can dog on insurance companies, I think ultimately when you go into insurance and you're trying to be in that healthcare space, you know, I think people actually do have good intentions. They want to get the people the right care in a cost-efficient mm -hmm. uh, manner um, and make sure that you're getting the right care. Um, and again, I think having, having something where we can map these children out in a high-dimensional space, um, which mm -hmm. is what Cognoa does, and being able to partner with, with LEARN to actually look at, and this is part of our agreement, is look at, you know, how do we actually tell you know, maybe is this the right therapist for this child? What are the things right. that we're working on that um, we can make sure that this child is getting the maximum, maximum benefit from what's being offered and, and given to them? I think is really important because, again, I, and I made the example earlier, um, but we see this a lot, right? If the child um, is unable to participate in, you know, one of the other therapies because of behavioral issues, you can try and expend all your energy in speech or occupational therapy, but until you get the behaviors under, under you know, a better, you know, uh, better control or, or improved status, the speech therapy is really not going to be beneficial to that child. And I think vice versa, yeah. if, if we can determine that the speech impairment is the reason that the child's behavior is so bad because they cannot, they're having difficulty communicating, right, we need to spend more time in speech therapy and, and less maybe in the behavioral side of things to try and move, move things along. And so mapping them out and determining what therapies are most effective um, and, you know, which therapists work best with which kinds of kids, right, that, that, that sort of matchmaking, I mean, that's mm -hmm. how Uber, you know, disrupted the taxi business, right? They, right. they were good at matchmaking. Um, so in the same way, you know, I think our job is, is to disrupt the status quo and really mm -hmm. try and help these kids um, do better and be better. I mean, it just, it seems like it keeps coming back to me is a, a def defining and re and refining this concept of medical need. You know, I, I you thought you'd mentioned that as matchmaking and I'm, you know, I, I, that's my mind automatically so quickly goes to, can we develop this medical need? And I, and then Taylor, like, this is the right type of person to treat this type of medical need. And, uh -huh. and then if you could take it a step further and say, and here's the people available to you who can meet this need, boom, you've got this match made. I mean, it, and it's from a treatment point of view, it, that, that seems to be such a big barrier is, you know, we, we have this DSM criteria. We've defined what autism is, but, Finding what medical necessity is for autism seems to be kind of a, a barrier in, or more of a gap, I should say, in kind of the, the equation. Listening to you, that, that feels like a big area that, that this can help fill in. I think there's a huge opportunity in this space. Um, and again, yeah. you know, it, it wouldn't matter so much, Rob, if, if time wasn't critical, but we right. have some very finite neurodevelopmental sure. windows um, that if you don't really maximize the therapy that's needed in those windows, you, you lose your opportunity to do it later. Um, and, you know, they, 
still may be effective later, but they're not as effective. And, right. and the lifelong gains that you're going to be able to give for that child are not where they need to be. And so I think these kinds of partnerships and mm-hmm. this, this huge explosion in technology and healthcare is really going to help drive this forward. Yeah. And again, you know, just like I, I tell parents, you know, my job is really to inform you. My job is to give you knowledge, right? I'm imparting knowledge on you so you can make the best decisions for your child. I think in the same token, as a clinician, if I'm data poor, I can't make good decisions for you. And so having, you know, having good information, again, if, you know, people are willing to sacrifice their privacy for, for, for help, right? There's p- patients who have cancer and they're like, you know what, I don't care. Post my MRI online. People do it, and guess what? And you right. crowdsource that. <laughs> we we've helped. The medical community actually comes to the call, and they're like, "Yeah, you know what? We think you have this, and you know that." So so there are patients that do this sort of crowdsourcing type of thing. But again, hmm. if if we have the information, then we can actually help these kids. Well, it's. I mean, it all comes back to, and, and we haven't said this. I think overtly, but it's it's really kind of implied, and, and you've referenced it a few times. It's like you think about getting that diagnosis, the difference between getting diagnosed at two versus four versus six versus eight versus ten. I mean, it just it it just is so the impact is so much greater if you can get the treatment the earliest possible. And I mean, I, I feel like that's the big barrier I keep hearing is. I thought something was wrong, but it took me about a year to a year and a half to either help verify that what I thought was a concern was a concern, get off a waiting list, find someone who took my insurance, et cetera. And, you know, a year is is more than a year when you're talking about this age group. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, despite all of our best intentions and all of our education and all of our awareness, we have not moved. The, the average age of diagnosis under the age of four. And frankly, that's way too wow. late. We've missed it. We've missed yeah. we've missed two years where we could have potentially even, you know, had the kid no longer meet criteria for autism because we know that there's a subset of kids that if you get them early intervention, and trust me, I mean, you've seen this, Rob, just like I've seen this. You get those kids in early, you recognize mm-hmm. them early, you get them the behavioral therapy and you get them the early intervention, Guess what? They they look great. It's almost like you know the, the, because what's happening is you're rewiring the brain, right? We we mm-hmm. we suspect on a biological level that a, much of what we see in autism is due to lack of pruning and uh, sort of a hyperconnectivity of neurons. And the way the brain works is network the neurons that fire together network together, right? So this mm-hmm. is why when we have epilepsy, for example, if you have a kiddo with seizures and you let those seizures continue, the brain gets good at having seizures. In the same way, if we allow the, the dysfunction of the way that that child's processing information to fester, right, mm-hmm. and, you, and you try and now treat it two years late, and it's been going on for two years, it's much harder to, to help that child prune and rewire their connections so that they can make sense of the world, right? Um, so that, that mm-hmm. early intervention really, really is something that needs to happen, um, and it is not going to happen until we identify the kids early and we get yeah. rid of these wait lists. I mean, look, it, it's, it's so simplistic, and obviously this this is greater than Cognoa or Learn or anything, but 
but it's a, it is a probably the best way of looking at this is our overall success as a as a field as an industry is really is it ultimately defined by can we turn the average age of diagnosis from four to three and a half or three? I mean, is it? I, I've never really thought about it that way, and it's very simple. But but is that really our best way of as an industry looking at our success? I I would say so, and I and I know for a fact that if I can, and I've seen this so many times, right? Um, yeah. You know, I actually have a great great story where I was I was actually walking in the hospital. Um, and I came across a family, they were lost. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll walk with you guys um, and, you know, take you where you go. So the mom and, uh, and a kid and her son, and we were going, we were going to visit her other child who was in the hospital. And so mm-hmm. by the time I had walked with them from the parking deck where they were kind of didn't know where they were going to where the child was in the hospital, I basically already diagnosed the younger sibling with autism. Wow. And so, and I had told the mom, you know, you know, Kind of not my place, but you know, I am a neurologist. Here's my card. I really think that you should have your pediatrician reach out, and I'm happy to evaluate your son. Um, I'm concerned about his development in the time we walked. And, you know, I'm not going to tell her the, the child has autism, but I was able to get that kiddo, and he was at that time he had just turned, I think he was 14 months. So we were able to get him. So they saw me within a, a few weeks. I expedited the appointment. I was able to see him at 15 months. You know, and there was some signs. The pediatrician just didn't have a tool to make the diagnosis. But we got him in at 15 months. Um, I actually wow. just saw him recently, maybe about a month ago, because I'm still clinically active. I saw him about a month ago. He's doing mm-hmm. great. He got into early therapy. He actually graduated out. So he's he's almost, uh, he's he's going into kindergarten. So he's out of behavioral therapy. He's out of speech therapy. He's out of OT. But he got those interventions for a few years. He, he no longer meets criteria for autism. He is totally neurotypical development. And wow. I can tell you for a fact, he was 100% autistic on autism spectrum when, we, when I picked him up at 15 months. And there was no question about that. He had all of the telltale signs. Wow. He had stereotypic behaviors, repetitive behaviors. He was speech delayed, sensory issues, you know, through, through and through. Um, and this, he looks like a neurotypical kid at you know going almost on five years of age so so we know that this can happen uh we just need to be more aggressive about getting earlier diagnosis because and the diagnosis doesn't actually matter it's the reason that you want earlier diagnosis so you can get earlier treatment and more effective treatment because imagine if you got that kiddo now and he's four which is the current average age of diagnosis and now that's been going on for two years and he's significantly impaired he's nonverbal, right We've allowed his stereotypic and repetitive behaviors to become more and more ingrained and more and more strengthen that network. Now you're going to spend, I don't know, 10 years trying to reverse all that, and you may not be successful because that's the way the brain works. It's not, that's not that, I mean, that's not so foreign a concept. Um, so, it, it, and honestly, it's a tragedy. It, this, is, this is part of why I joined Cucknell because I saw, just like Dr. Wall saw, an opportunity to fundamentally change the way that we're doing healthcare so that we don't have those kinds of disparities that happen in the healthcare system. I think this is a perfect place for us to to wrap up as as we're coming up on time. I mean, just the the story you you just told, I think is is as you said, this is the exact reason why we need to do all this this stuff. Um, you know, for everybody out there, this is uh 
probably most of our listeners the first time they've, they've heard of Cognoa. How, if, if someone wants to learn more about it, if someone actually has a concern themselves and wants to try and you know, see if Cognoa is a good opportunity for them or a good option for them, you know, how can, how can folks get more information? Uh, so they can visit our website at www.cognoa.com. Um, we are available through the Learn Partnership. If you um, are through Learn, you can access Cognoa um, through that partnership. Um, and then if uh, you have insurance through one of our uh, self-funded insurers or employers, um, we have some partnerships with a number of different companies um, to offer uh, Cognoa as a benefit to those, to those employees. It's been it's been so great having you here. I mean, hopefully we can do this again. I, I think it would be really cool for us to kind of reconvene almost like a year from now and kind of say like, hey, we've been doing this partnership for a year, and here's some of the things we've learned and achieved because, you know, the future opportunities of all of this is, is what it's really about. And I and I think there's just about a lot we can accomplish. So it's been it's been great kind of learning more about this and, and talking in partnership with you. Thank you so much, Rob. I do look forward to it, and I and and I uh, let's call it a date. We'll see you in a year, and and you and I will have some great stories to share about all the great things that we've done in this partnership. I love it. It sounds awesome. So that's our show for this week. Um, I want to just mention the free screening that we're offering again after talking with Sharif and and about just the importance of early diagnosis and and some of the barriers out there. Free screenings like this, I think, can be really valuable to just ball rolling that much faster to be able to start accessing the appropriate treatment. So the free screening is going to be offered on Saturday, February 9th um, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. in Chicago at the uh, West Loop Office of Autism Spectrum Therapies. It's 670 West Hubbard Street, Suite 200, Chicago, Illinois. Thank you all so much for joining us this week. Um, hope you guys have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by the Learn AST Provider Network. You can listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com, on iTunes, and on Apple Podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.